The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. As promised, I'd like to pick up with Gabe's reference to the Dhammajaka Babatana Sutta. Um, whether or not the framing story as the first teaching is historically true or not, giving it that frame is at a minimum a way to signal that the tradition as these teachings were compiled and recorded considered this framework or structure of the four ennobling realities for uh, truth pointings of the noble one to be central to the tradition. And it could be historically accurate as well. One of the many things we'll never know, though sometimes it's fun to speculate. So I'd like to <clears throat> go through the what I consider to be levels of the the piece that Gabe brought up, <clears throat> and link them with uh, references in other parts of the discourses that give a little more context. And I'll try to keep my commentary restrained. So first, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. <clears throat> There's an account in the Samyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses is how Bhikkhu Bodhi has translated that. There's a discourse called the city based on a extended metaphor at the end of the discourse. <clears throat> the, the gist of this discourse, in the gist of this, the Buddha refers to a period before his awakening. My guess is he spoke this towards much later in his life, and was looking back and expressing what had happened maybe weeks or perhaps months before his awakening. I think almost for sure not years. My guess is weeks to a couple months. And 
I've got a translation here, but it'll take me more time than necessary to find it. But the gist of it is, and here the Buddha is speaking to a group of monks, and there may have been nuns there, but that's usually not mentioned for the usual patriarchal um, blindness. So it's another thing we'll never know. Who else was there besides the monks? <laughs> Again, that's a topic for another day. Anyway, whoever the Buddha is speaking to, he says, Previously, while still a bodhisattva, not yet awakened, the question occurred to me, or the could be translated doubt, the wondering occurred to me. How will beings that are trapped in birth, aging, illness, in death, or he, he doesn't in this one use the word trapped, but how do beings who are subject to birth, aging, illness, and death ever be released? Or I think the Pali word used here is sarana, the skillful way out from. How will that be ever realized? And what's interesting, I, I could look up my translation of the exact wording, but there's some interesting pieces here. There's a questioning going on, back to what I said about inquiry. And by the way, what's your name? Kaya pointed out that in her Jewish upbringing, the notion of dogmatic truth was non-existent, whereas questioning was highly valued. So I think that's important. So we don't overly love Judeo and Christian together when there are important differences. So this is a discourse where questions play a big part. Second, in a way that later tradition has largely overlooked, the pre-Buddha, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, was ignorant. Now, that's... In our culture, a lot of us take that to be pejorative. In the early teachings, it's just a statement of fact, lack of knowledge. The pre-Buddha lacked the necessary knowledge of how to be free of the dukkha exemplified by birth, aging, illness, and death. 
And not only that, he didn't, couldn't find anybody who had that knowledge. So he was, he had reached a point in his spiritual journey after leaving the so-called palace that wasn't ever a palace. Again, another story. He'd reached this point where there's this huge existential, no-ism, dilemma about birth, aging, illness, and death, and nobody has the answer. There are people who claim answers. The bodhisattva reached the conclusion they don't really know what they're talking about. And he didn't have the answer either. Buddha's tradition tends to forget that before there was Buddha, there was a bodhisattva who had some fundamental ignorance, like us, which I think humanizes this story. And before I go back to birth, aging, illness, and death, I also want to mention his response to that is what I believe led to there being a Buddha and awakened one. He didn't try to figure it out and come up with a quick answer, which is what we often do. We'll kind of grope around, grab an answer, and, oh, I've got an answer. He reflected, we don't know for how long. Well, he asked the key question, on what is the dukkha connected with aging, illness, and death dependent? What does the dukkha connect with aging, illness, and death depend upon? His response was to ask a question. He came up with an answer in quotation marks because he didn't just grab onto the answer and write his PhD on it and build a career. He then questioned his question. Okay, what does that depend on? And he came up with another provisional answer and asked, and what does that depend on? And he kept tracing the dependency. And out of that, out of a process, not out of answers, is how the awakening emerged. I, I think this is a super important discourse about inquiry and process rather than answers. But then back to the Dhammajaka Bhavatana Sutta, the so-called first discourse. This sutta has the bodhisattva referring to birth, aging, illness, and death as a a human dilemma 
before there was a Buddha. And now we know from Upanishadic literature that goes back 100, 200 years before the Buddha's time and further developed after the Buddha's time. These were questions being raised in India a century or two, but not 500 years. The so-called early Vedas weren't talking in these terms. This question of the association between birth, aging, illness, and death, and dukkha was widespread among Indian thinkers in and, in, say, a century or so before the Buddha's time. One thing I do with this information, which is factual, now my take, which is interpretive, The Buddha was starting, again, pre-awakening with the thinking of his time. And I think if we're going to talk about dukkha and aging, illness, and death, it's important to situate it in that context. It may still apply to us Today, the question is how it applies. The Buddha, or the Bodhisattva, had started with this dilemma because the thinkers of the Upanishads, which were eventually written down after the Buddha's time, were proposing variations on the theme that the Atman, which undergoes birth, aging, illness, and death, can escape the repeated births and deaths that had developed in Upanishadic theory, but which is not found in earlier teaching. So even that rebirth, reincarnation stuff was not that old in the Buddha's time. So he was starting where the leading thinkers of his time were with that. So I believe in the first sermon, it's a way to link up. But yet there's an experiential component to that, that people often suffer about birth, aging, illness, and death. Uh, for example, our farrier, uh, Joe Marie, has horses, and our Amish farrier, he and his wife were unable to conceive. And in Amish families, that can be a source of a lot of suffering. And we can find plenty of people who suffer because of the inability 
to conceive and eventually they they had a child difficult pregnancy the child survived and is is doing well and they had a second child but spent a lot of money on fertility treatments so there's probably a fair amount of suffering in that aspect of birth and i'm sure you can think of plenty of other ways we can suffer in connection with birth illness pretty obvious right a lot of people suffer out of fear of getting sick um patrice was mentioning the hotline she sometimes answers the phone for a lot of hiv questions related questions motivated by fear at least that's what she mentioned last night uh, i myself many friends just got an email about a cousin cancer diagnosis fear and other things anger fair amount of dukkha can arise aging I'm not the only one who's 60 and up but we can start suffering about aging much earlier and death question is I've been using the phrasing the suffering connected with birth aging illness and death question that goes back to where i started this morning is birth aging illness and death necessarily suffering and if so what kind of suffering i'm i'm okay saying dukkha but is it the dukkha created by craving is say illness a form of suffering created by craving some buddhists interpret it that way and i personally feel come up with outlandish judgmental attempts to try to explain it which i don't buy because it ends up being some kind of blame the victim thing well you blah 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 in a past life so it's kind of your fault oh you got raped that's a shame too bad you blah 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 in a past life sorry but it can be that bad um doesn't doesn't work for me and there's another way to understand it so i'm not dependent on such explanation death 
to what extent is death a problem created by craving and egoism, which if we explore the four ennobling truths, we keep coming back to stuff like craving, clinging, egoism, greed, hatred, delusion, and ignorance. Is that the kind of dukkha that is necessary with that? Or are, is birth, aging, illness, and death what I called existential facts? They happen, part of life, and so it's dukkha more in the sense somewhat of pain, because illness can involve pain, Aging can involve pain and difficulty, hardship. Death can be painful, not always, especially with modern drugs. But it's still, if you've watched somebody die and the, the way the breathing is, the final minutes, it's obviously hard on the body many cases at least. And that's how it's pictured in standard hospice literature. So sure, there's pain. So dukkha vetana. And maybe these are just part of the dukkha characteristics. That it's the nature of life on this planet. Things are born, they die. It ain't always easy. It's not always fun. May not be convenient, and so on. So those are a few reflections I'll, I'll speak to on that level. Second, <clears throat> Experiencing that which is unloved, abiehi, pia is one of the words that has to do with love or being dear, cherished. Things that are unloved, unpleasing, unsatisfying, having to experience them is dukkha. I think we heard some examples of that this morning being separated from what we love, what's dear to us, what's pleasing and satisfying, that's dukkha. So loss of what is attractive, pleasing, and dear, or experiencing the opposite. Wanting things and not getting them is dukkha. Is this the same kind of pain as stepping on a thorn, having a toothache, or even the more intense pain of, say, 
appendicitis or um, Lyme disease and so on. And what extent does craving, which by the way in the early suttas is always ignorant, the word craving by, not quite by definition, but always by association, is coming from not knowing, not understanding. Or there are other terms that aren't necessarily ignorant, but they're a kind of wanting. So are these three experiencing the unloved, separation from the love, not getting what we want? What kind of dukkha is that? Is it kind of ordinary pain? Or is it more a kind of emotional pain? Is that necessary, inherent, automatic, no option? Or is it sort of, on some level, voluntary? Or volitional, to use a more technical Buddhist term. The idea of it being volitional is we can cultivate other volitions. So it implies some degree of choice, even though it may require a lot of training to take advantage of that choice opportunity. The next strata, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, except for the word pain, all the others seem to me to be emotional reactions. Sorrow's a little less obvious. Seems to me there are things, somebody close to us dies, we feel sadness or sorrow. Personally, I don't have a problem with that. I'm not looking to escape feeling sadness when things I care about are destroyed. I don't want to get angry about that, but I'm not trying to be free of any sadness. Now I'm in, I know I'm in somewhat dicey ground, but when I turned 60, I gave myself permission to ice skate, even when the ice might be thin, uh, because there's stuff in the suttas that could be interpreted that the teachings about not experiencing sadness. And if that happens someday, okay, I'll deal with it. But right now, I don't see that as a, a significant problem. But I have met people who 
really want to avoid all sadness. I'm not sure that's mature. But lamentation, the way I take that word, that boy is that kind of being all emotionally entangled with something, grief, depends. It's another term that gets used in different ways. But I think in the Pali, it's, again, some egoistic involvement. Despair, letting what's hard and difficult really press us down or depress us till we give up hope. We don't see options. We're, tra we're trapped. Maybe I'm commenting already more than I should to challenge you to really dig into these terms. What what might it be talking about? And to me, it comes down to, are we talking about existential necessities like breathing, eating, aging, and dying? Or are we talking about avoidable craving-caused? And here, I, I tend to use the word suffering, though I prefer distress the unnecessary distress caused by craving and egoism. And then to complete this section of the Dhammajaka Bhavatana Sutta, in short, Sankitena Panchupata Panchupata Banchu, but I'm confusing myself between the spelling and the Thai pronunciation. Because, anyway, the five pancha, upadana, clinging, kanda, aggregates. The five clinging together aggregates <clears throat> are dukkha. I translate it as fives non-controversial. The question is, what's the relationship between upadana, clinging, grasping, attachment, and khandas? Basically, clinging, the simplest way to take it is clinging to our subjectivity clinging to a sense of self and therefore grasping at me and mine. That happens based in these so-called five aggregates or groups. And I'm not going to try to spell out the five because that doesn't matter so much right now. But there's five psycho-emotional functions that are interacting 
over and over again in life. And when these happen with clinging, that is suffering. Did that sound coherent? No? I'm seeing awkward smiles. That means not coherent. So let me try again. When we experience, <clears throat> as in I'm having this experience, whether I'm listening, seeing, being touched, touching, thinking, remembering, and then these experiences are pleasant, unpleasant, agreeable, disagreeable for me, and then having ideas, perceptions around these experiences, and then thinking and reacting. And all of this is happening in a container of me being aware of this stuff to some extent. This package of experiencing, when it's happening through me and mine, that's dukkha. Is that more coherent? No? Okay. I'll keep going because to me it's a mark. Well, you went from death to... So I think it's highly relevant and a couple things to start dancing around the death part. In suttas, there are numerous places where the Buddha comments on 
an arahant having died. But there's no discussion of the transition. Just, oh, arahant. Can't, can't find things like can't find a trace. That's it in suttas. Any further detail comes much later, even five, eight, a thousand years later, fifteen hundred years later. Second, Arahant is conventional language. These terms, once returner, non-returner, are about persons, even Buddha often is used in conventional terms, there's a person, which is already a little bit in contradiction to all the teachings that focus on emptiness. And then Buddhism kind of, you dance between both aspects, conventional, ultimate. So it's not like, oh, it's conventional, it's wrong. It's the common way of speaking. There's this person, now they're dead. But there's other ways where we don't speak in personal terms, like somebody was alive, somebody died. So that's another circling around uh, your point. Third, there are places where parinibbana doesn't have anything to do with death. That is a later association. We don't know how much later, but there are sutta passages. The one I remember, because it makes this point clearly, the Buddha said, Having parinibbana, I teach parinibbana for the sake of parinibbana. And pari means all around or thorough. So it's thorough nibbana, thorough quenching, thorough cooling, thorough stillness, various takes on what nibbana refers to. Or unbinding is Tanisro's way of understanding it. So obviously the Buddha was alive, but he already had experienced parinibbana, so the term is more fluid than the commentaries later defined it. There's one more thing that popped into my head. About this. Well, there's a sutta I'm hoping to get to, to Malunkya Puta, and numerous suttas where something like Parinibbana is referred to that's clearly not about death. And there are many of these. 
the word parinibbana is not always used. I'll, I hope to look at this in more detail. This is from the Malunkya Putta Sutta. And I'll read just the ending. Whenever in seeing you merely see, in hearing you merely hear, in experiencing you merely experience, and in knowing you merely know. This part is also in the Bahiya Sutta, which is often referred to. For that reason, you will not be. When you are not, you will not be in that. When you are not in that, you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. End of suffering is the most common uh, explanation of Nibbana, whether Pari or just Nibbana. So there's still seeing, hearing, experiencing, which refers to smell, taste, touch, and knowing, but without something, which I would say are all the second arrows. And then there's no you in that, with that, there's there's neither here nor beyond nor in between. Just this is the end of dukkha. And this kind of phrasing happens in a number of key suttas. So it's not just one place where there's living sense experience. It's not being in some meditative trance. And that point is also made in a number of places. So I don't think I answered directly, but that's, I think, enough to reflect on. Okay, where do we go from here? Sure. Oh, I'm supposed to pass the mic. Sorry, Mark, we've lost yours. So when you're asking whether um, what you were saying about the... Uh, the aggregates and the clinging was clear or not. Um, I thought I'd try a, my understanding of it and, and see if it's if it's right. Uh, it, it's the way you see it. So, <clears throat> are you saying that you know the aggregates can all have their act? They can all be active. They can all be doing their thing as long as we're conditioned beings. These these will all be 
present and active, but suffering only comes in when we, when we make an I out of them, when we identify any of them as I or me. Is that, is that, is that it? That's what I used to think. But, um, I was leading a study retreat outside Munich this past summer and with my old buddy, Viria, who's Bavarian, uh, we got into a disagreement. So I went back to suttas and was opening dictionaries. It was a study retreat, so that was legal. And I kept noticing these things that I am now entertaining the what I consider to be a strong possibility that suttas don't speak of aggregates except to talk about clinging. Possibly with a few exceptions, because there's always at least a few. I know that later tradition came up with the concept of pure aggregates, mm -hmm. which is a non-personal term for arahant. That, who knows how much later that arose. But it's possible because the most common way to refer to aggregates is to talk about how clinging manifests. Now, the confusion can occur because many of the same terms are used in other contexts that may not involve clinging. I would say Vedana, for example. I believe there can be pleasure and pain without clinging. It may be common that pleasure and pain trigger craving and clinging and so on, but it's not a necessity. Same with Sanya, the third of the aggregate sanya perception, though there's a good bet that cognition's a better term or a better translation. So craving creates the aggregates, or at least they co-arise, something They're, like that? Yeah, common terms around the clinging that makes aggregates are clinging is uh, Nandi delight and Nandi raga passionate delight. When the khandas operate with a certain juiciness, how I like to put it, a certain gooiness, then you've got clinging together aggregates. And what holds them together as this existential tangle is me and mine. And then craving 
in the standard dependent arising is what that depends on craving, which is a reaction to pleasure, pain, the Vedana spectrum, which happens because we're sensate creatures. And then a certain logic says, well, we're only reborn as sensate creatures because of karma, craving in past lives, and that's that's the way Orthodox, Theravada, Tibetan have gone. But I'm, I have strong doubts that that's what the Buddha was stressing. It's possible the Buddha was dancing with layers of interpretation that people could interact with depending on their need and ability, which, by the way, was common in Dante and uh, Muslim scholars of the 10th, century, 10th, 11th century. So the idea of multiple layers of interpretation in the West and the Middle East goes back a long way, could go back even further and further east. And I just mentioned that because how often are we looking for some ego security, intellectual security as well? This is what it means. Well, what if it means this sort of and? And all of this is not to blow our understanding to smithereens. I'm not here to just be Steve Bannon. But, but I believe opening this up for healthy inquiry is our best shot at using these teachings for deeper liberation rather than getting entrenched in narrow linguistic and intellectual boxes. We'll go here, since the mic's in. No, Doug, just behind you. Okay. So I'm trying to figure out if, if you're saying that um, with the aggregates, which are a part of all experiences, I understand that um, that with the bahia thing and the seeing is only seeing. You're you're not saying that the process of the arising of all five stops with the seeing, with just the sensing. You're saying the process goes on, but without clinging. What what I'm what I want to study further, but I'm not yet insisting, is, yes, the, pro the experiential process goes on, seeing, hearing, smelling, and then having perceptions, having thoughts, making choices, all that can go on. 
And the suttas don't speak of that as aggregates until clinging's involved. Because the aggregate's teaching is one to help us identify how clinging manifests what is clinging clinging to. Well, the pleasure and pain to thoughts and memories to thinking and emotions and to the experiencer. That's the fifth aggregate of clinging is me knowing this or me aware of this. So it's usually translated consciousness, but that's another term to re rethink. And more and more people are saying that's misleading. So the experiential process goes on, change, all that. But the term aggregates comes into play in early Buddhism when we're trying to see how clinging happens and operates. And then the second way aggregates are used is to pay attention to these aggregates that they don't last. And when they don't last, they're uncertain, undependable. And then ask, are they satisfying or unsatisfying? Now we're in the territory of the so-called lacuna or characteristics. The but later Buddhism started, and you can find books like the stuff I would get from Sri Lanka, which was good, thoughtful, orthodox Theravada, which is where my grounding has been. They're translated as aggregates of being. In fact, that's still the German translation I found out because the assumption is they're always there and operate. So what I'm proposing is a departure from that idea. And I'm, as far as I can tell, the suttas don't actually say what the later tradition has called aggregates of existence. There are certain philosophical jumps get made to get from what the suttas actually say to the idea of the aggregates are always there. So we'll move over to that wall now. Is it still on this topic? Because a lot of hands are going up. Yeah, um, not to, I, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't even bring this up, but it seems to me that, um, th that you know, what you're talking about is, um, well, it brings to mind the Heart Sutra. It seems to me that this is really what the Heart Sutra is talking about. And, and to me, the, um, 
kind of the point is, or part of the point is, I guess, that we cling to a, a lot, we cling to a lot, uh, I think, of things that we don't understand that we're clinging to, like um, the distinction, for instance, between seeing and hearing, or uh, the distinction between the all of the... Um, the details and distinctions that we make within our experience. And um, uh, uh, there's a, a kind of experience of, of um, uh, I don't know, I, I, that's, all the, that's all the farther I can go, but that's just what came to my mind. Should I respond? Because I'm a fan of the Heart Sutra. I've spent enough time in Zen and Chan monasteries chanting it. The Heart Sutra has the famous not, not, not stuff, which was common in the early Prajnaparamita literature, six, seven, whatever, hundred years after the Buddha. Um, so during the commentarial phase in so-called Theravada, although it wasn't called Theravada back then. And it seems to be about a key point of the Heart Sutra, which is um, very much about emptiness, voidness, is that if we're not careful, our concepts, we hold on to them in a way that bogs us down and then makes clinging easier. And from concepts, we easily go to opinions, fixed views, which are big trouble. And the earliest strata of poly literature really gives a lot of attention to fixed views. Such as, my this view is right, other views are wrong. That's dukkha. And then, uh, One other point, oh, something Ajahn Buddhadasa has pointed out that I think is accurate. The Buddha invests the most effort in naming things when it's pointing to how dukkha is created. Then it's worth naming things so we pay more to help point to pay more attention. Where there's no dukkha, he doesn't go into detail because there's no need. And if we talk about it too much, then we start clinging to the goal we're trying to get to. Oh, I want to be an arahant. <laughs> you can't want to be an arahant and be an arahant. <laughs> And if you hold that real loosely, probably not a problem. But at some point, it's become silly. 
So I had two things. Um, the first is because the concept of reincarnation was more prevalent in the different philosophies and religions of the area at the time, and because the early um, texts didn't actually speak of reincarnation, wouldn't the concept of and holding to be a form of clinging to life, to the continuation of our existence somehow? The concept of clinging? Well, the, con the concept more. of reincarnation uh -huh. and holding to that as a belief, couldn't that be a form of clinging to one's life or existence in terms of wanting to continue? Well, the early strata I just mentioned to in terms of views, clinging to any view, whether it's the view there is reincarnation, there isn't, or even the view that they're equally likely. The point is, any view you can come up with, if it's held to with clinging, which implies a certain sense of, you know, even if I distinguish it from perspective, we're limited creatures in bodies with senses. So. This is a male body. There are aspects of female experience I cannot access. I can try to be as sensitive as possible, but I don't have direct access unless I have the meditative ability to get inside women and blah, blah, blah. So we're always limited in perspective. As soon as we take a perspective, even if somewhat or valid, and hold on to it, then it, it starts to distort. And do you mind if I mention one other thing? Um, I've also often heard dukkha as a resistance to what is, a resistance to change, a resistance, um, a resistance to the the reality of what's actually happening, and our our living experience trying to secure itself by holding on to certain things. Is that? I don't know if that covers all bases, but that surely is seems to me forms of dukkha, and if Sacha is this truth, reality, I think it's valid to say practice is about being in harmony with the reality rather than resisting it, which applies to pleasure as much as pain. Birth and death and everything in between. There were a few more hands, or did you change your minds? Has this gotten too philosophical? No? Okay. In this past hour or so, 
and maybe we need a break soon before the last lap. We've touched on, like I just did a quick run through when talking about khandas, the three main lakana, and they're often called the T or three lakana. Uh, I translate them doesn't last. Let's call it unsatisfactoriness for now or just dukkhaness and then selflessness or insubstantiality. Um, so those were touched on in a few ways. Also touched upon the upa dana khandas, the five clinging together aggregates, as being the core or summary of dukkha, such as in the Dhammajaka, Bhavatana. We could come back to either of these and look into them in more detail. I also have a closing uh, guided practice that'll take 30 minutes. I was thinking to do that almost at the end today. So let's break for 10 minutes or so, and then we'll be back for a little more than an hour. And we'll, we'll choose something <laughs> about dukkha in the ennobling realities or dukkha as a characteristic. So how are we doing? <laughs> we have about an hour and 15 minutes or so. I feel we, we, we did a pretty good job on exploring the Vedana usage of dukkha, which to me is pain. That's my go-to word. And then I'm not sure if we want to explore more dukkha that arises out of craving, ignorant craving, and craving that fosters ego clinging, which kind of has levels or degrees, which is I'm taking to be the territory of the second arrow. I'm roughly uh, taking the first arrow to be about pain. So it can also be pleasure. 
And then second arrow is all this stuff that's about the uh, four Arya Sajab, the four ennobling realities. And then there's this notion of a characteristic of dukkha that is shared by all created things, all sankharas, all compounded, all things, all, yeah, all things that are put together, sankhara literally means made or put together, fabricated, concocted. Which of these arrow uh, directions would be most useful to you? I don't know how we can get a quick consensus. <laughs> But it'd be nice. I don't read minds. <laughs> You're the guiding teacher here. <laughs> I'm not the guiding teacher here. <laughs> you do? <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> you don't pay Mark? Are you bucking for a race? Is this Duca right now? <laughs> Dama wrestling. Well, the first choice wasn't a choice because I, I think we've said enough about the Vaitanaya aspect. I'm kind of feeling we could, the one that's gotten the least attention is the Lakana aspect. And in some ways might be the most. Well, then that means we could make more meaning out of it. <laughs> Characteristic. Lakana. L K K H A N with a sub dot A. Pali has more N characters than we have. Consonants. Yeah, Indian languages have more consonants than European, so we have to do things like stick dots under and over letters to represent the full Indian alphabet. That's why we get these little dots, or even KH is a single consonant. It's not so like Dukkha is D-U-K-K-H-A. K is one consonant. K-H is another. Yeah. 
KH is an aspirated K, so there's just a more simple cut. Or actually, as soon as you put the puff of air, it's aspirated. So, Duke, if it's a simple K, it's often at the end of a syllable, and you, so it's Duke or Duka. And that shows up. You'll see like Buddha. Buddha. Buddha is not correct. It's Buddha. You put a little bit of air into the second D. And if we pronounce it like Buddha, B-U-D, Buddha, that means something like old man. But we're not in India, so nobody knows the difference. And we're not trained to hear the difference, and I have to try real hard to pronounce it. So Lakana, we'll explore Dukkha as Lakana. Characteristics. Characteristics or signs is this are this most common translation. Who's familiar with the so-called three characteristics? Oh, so that's not as widespread. In Theravada, Southeast Asian Vipassana, this is a real big deal. So most Vipassana places in Asia refer to them a lot because sort of officially Vipassana is about seeing these characteristics. I feel that's a little too narrow, but it's a good starting point for understanding Vipassana. Throughout the early teachings, Buddha is supposed to have inquired. Often it would be a kind of catechism cue, question, response with monks and whoever else was present. Sometimes about the senses. Our eyes, you'll often see it translated as permanent, nicha, impermanent, anicha. Our eyes, permanent or impermanent, what do you think? Gold star. Our ears permanent or impermanent? Yeah, now you go on automatic pilot, right? <laughs> That's why sometimes suttas, you know, we gotta really stop and process it or we just zip through. So to take it to some experiential level. So we have this hearing apparatus, we have seeing apparatus, 
we have smelling, tasting, touching apparatus. And we have a knowing apparatus, mind. Do we have any evidence that any of these last forever? Now, sometimes there are concepts, especially about the sixth one, eternal soul, sometimes being a variation of that, or universal consciousness in some philosophical, spiritual ideas. But in suttas, looking at our actual experience of the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, remembering, or touching, remembering, knowing apparatus. Do we ever experience these in a way where they last? And so I don't, I no longer use permanent, impermanent, because they strike me as rather abstract. But when I bring it to experience, oh, seeing that span, hearing the sound coming out of the vent, hearing my own voice, something in the knee, a little tightness in my belly, um, my own thoughts, As attention or recognition happens around these different sense modalities, do I ever experience one that lasts? Conceptually, we might make an assumption, oh yeah, the eyes, they're always kind of in here, the brain, you know. And some of us might have an idea, it's always processing visual stuff, we just don't notice. But when we bring mindfulness to bear, pay attention in some consistent way, do we have any evidence that any of these have more than fleeting lastingness? And so I would phrase the question, eyes, ears, nose, etc., visual apparatus, etc., are they lasting or not lasting? Because what I can experience, oh, that didn't last, that didn't last, or that didn't last, and it sinks in. That is my way currently of understanding the first characteristic. And often the early teachings come down to the basic senses. So in seeing, there's also the, in this case, fan spinning that's seen. Well, the same inquiry, visual object, sound, smell, sensate, tangible sensation, memory, 
So they're the senses and their so-called objects. Do we have any evidence that any of these objects last? We may assume, but we now know with smartphones they last Physically, they might be good for two and a half to three years, but the marketing cycle is much less. <laughs> I know that's maybe an unfair example. But experientially, how long does the fan last? Or the sound? Or the tension here? Or the memory, the thought? or even the shame, the guilt, the frustration, the joy, the excitement, the boredom. So that's first characteristic. And terms associated with this characteristic of not lasting are a closely related term, uncertain. Anitya, not, wait. Yeah. And there's adurang, which is literally not long-lasting. And there's uncertain aniyatang, aniyata, anicha and aniyata. And I bring in well, this is kind of a transition to the second. Any experiential reality that we can experience. So none of this is meant to be abstract because I don't think the Buddha's teachings about abstract stuff. It's about, it's always experiential stuff which we can then bring mindfulness to bear upon and investigate experientially. So we're noticing all these bits of our daily experience as well as our meditative experience. When we pay attention, everything doesn't last, is uncertain, unstable, and yet, and this goes back to our craving, um, we didn't talk a lot about it yet, but I think somebody touched on craving certainty. We're often trying real hard, especially middle class folks like myself, we like security. We're often willing to trade a lot to get security. And we're freaking out because right now <laughs> our security is being taken apart, dismantled actively. It's scary. And the more we seek security, the more freaky and scary it is. So I bring that to point two. What if it's all basically insecure. 
to me, that's an implication of the first characteristic. Then we notice, oh, damn, things that don't last and are uncertain, that also means there's always an element of unpredictability. And some of us really like our predictability. Then can we really depend on stuff that doesn't last, is uncertain and unpredictable? To me, that's a transition from the first characteristic to the second, which has often been translated as unsatisfactoriness. And here's the Pali word is dukkha. Our impermanent, not lasting, uncertain, undependable things, a dependable source of well-being and happiness, sukha. Or are they dukkha? Now, often in the teachings, the word lakana is not attached. But this is an inquiry that's very frequent, whether it starts with the sense bases and sense objects, or it starts with the so-called aggregate. So now we're back to where we started today in terms of lakana. When is dukkha speaking of this sort of existential level? If, if that's the right word, that this, or as I put it, basic fact of stuff or of experience that whatever we're experiencing is subject to entropy, falling apart. And how much can we count on such things? That, to me, gets to the unsatisfactory. Now, back to our, the questions we've been exploring all day. Is it possible to interact with unstable, unsatisfactory life? Because we're all going to die. And yet not suffer. If we translate the characteristic that I've just spoken of as suffering, and we have some idea of somehow getting rid of or escaping such suffering, how are we going to do that? That's a question that I feel 
traditional Orthodox Theravada and much of Mahayana as well doesn't answer so well. Or the best they come up is, as Mark referred to, well, die and don't get reborn. Correct? So that's, that's kind of where you end up if you interpret the second characteristic as the same suffering as the ennobling truths or noble truths. The noble truth of suffering, there's suffering, it happens because of craving, the end of suffering is through the end of craving, and there's the Noble Eightfold Path that ends craving. And that also gets us free of the instability and unsatisfactoriness of life, of experience. That's one way to kind of put it all together where it's all suffering. And you hear that, it's all suffering. Because if you say suffering is a universal characteristic, then it's not a stretch to say everything is suffering. How do we deal with that through practice? To me, that's an important question and challenge. Anybody agree? Anybody got a good response? I'm totally lost, obviously. Well, what I'm saying is the most standard path boils down to die and don't get reborn. How do you know? So, so now I'm really suffering. <laughs> what did you say, Mark? He's oh, I haven't died haven't yet. Died okay. Yet. <laughs> well, maybe I've died many times, you know. And that's actually the way I see it. I, I do feel I've died many times. I've, I feel if you do meditation right, you see death and life all the time. So, um, But that's so I, not what Theravada orthodoxy is saying. Yeah. And maybe you haven't studied much with Theravada orthodoxy. <laughs> Utation yeah. is not teaching that stuff. Yeah. I think it's not. I would say more and more, yes. So I may be speaking too much to But it's not just Asian. 
I can point to some leading translators who still seem fully committed to that understanding. And then if that's our source of translation and we can't dig behind it to the poly, it affects. Can I go back to what we were talking about earlier with Doubt. aggregates? With the point that uh, Sachikara was making that aggregates exist when there's clinging. And then that begs the question, you know, if we were to put language to the experience of the body-mind without clinging, what's that? Right? So... Because this is, I think, goes to this point that Doug was making about dying. And it, what's really dying is the kind of the construction of someone who's suffering or somebody who wants things to be other than the way that they are or whatever that self feels like or whatever that self is involved with. And then in a moment it can die or certainly lessen. And then... Uh, so I guess I guess the question, comment, and asking for a response, Santikaro, is about these lakanas, these three characteristics. They're relative truths. Well, like you were saying before, it's the Buddha creating a map for suffering beings. It's not a map for somebody for a mind that isn't involved in grasping or clinging. Who needs a map? Exactly. And that's where the raft simile comes in as well. Raft. You create the raft across the river. You don't carry it around for the rest of eternity. Um, yeah, this this whole sort of line of uh, conversation is uh, really reminiscent of my sort of recent experience. Um, I, I've been dealing with some uh, health things that uh, involve a lot of physical discomfort internally and externally. And like by the end of the year-end retreat here, like the night after it ended, I sort of had this experience where, uh, as best I can describe it, like um, I was able to stay with the the discomfort really well and like sort of realize how there was this sort of subtle expectation that it was going to go away, like, not even just with, like, the, like, strong things, but even just, like, oh, there's, like, pain in my arm, so I move it, and then it just moves to somewhere else, but the mind, like, all the things that, like, the mind would take as an excuse to be, like, oh, now I can stop paying attention to try and fix this into place, and, like, for for a little while, it dropped the expectation that the discomfort was going anywhere, and was just able to stay with it, like, in a very sort of microscopic way and like see it just kind of like move around in a way that was just, it was, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of like freedom from that and a lot of peace. And then that sort of led to, <laughs> uh, discovering like a more sort of like fundamental, like ex- sort of like existential discomfort rather than like physical sensations and we'll stay with that for a while. And then, eventually like drifted away from that and then for a while there was more like reflections of that of being able to stay with the discomfort 
And then that faded away too when I was sort of back to just being an ordinary suffering human being. And, oh. uh, Why did you come back to being an ordinary <laughs> suffering human being? I don't know. Huh? To come back? Instead of a neurotically suffering. Yeah. Like at, at the time, it, it really felt like I was like, oh, like this is like a, a trick or something that I've learned and I'll be able to use this. And, and then it turned out that was impermanent and impersonal too. <laughs> well, maybe some of what you learned could keep being applied. Right. But as soon as you stop applying it. Yeah, you have to work to get back. Back there. Something like that. Yeah. There might be more involved, but right, like it, yeah, it does seem dependent on like a certain amount of like stability or energy to maintain that that level of moment to moment presence. Yeah, to me, part of that is when we find good, skillful practice, it's still a training. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, but after an adequate period of training, it becomes more part of it. And the effortful piece can relax or drop away. Right. I guess that's part of what was confusing to me about it is it's just like, okay, so this seems like skillful in that it's being with suffering and not trying to like distance myself from it. But then, yeah, I was just getting confused of like, is it clinging to it to try and do that or like reproduce that or like. Yeah, yeah that's called thinking too much. <laughs> <laughs> Where <coughs> in the Pali word for question or for problem is comes from the Pali word panha, which also means question. And to me, this points to the frequent relationship between having a question and having a problem. Mm -hmm. And it's related to the difference between doubting and, um, or you could say there are two kinds of doubt. There's the kind of doubt, don't know for sure, let's inquire. And then there's the kind of doubt that perpetuates anxiety. So it's for you to kind of keep, are you asking a question like, oh, maybe I'm clinging to this? That's conceptual. Mm -hmm. If you will just look, is there clinging here that's creating a problem mm -hmm. or not? But often we get into our thinking and we make a problem. And that becomes a question and we think about it. Okay, so I, I think that so like trying trying to reproduce something can be an experiment until you're 
like until it doesn't work and it becomes a source of stress and you're clinging to it, is it? Perhaps, or you find when it works, when it doesn't, or you find, oh, I was close, but here's a more refined version, mm -hmm. but you keep learning. Right. Thank you. So we should round out the three lakana and then um, close somehow. So in the usual catechism that I mentioned after going through is a lasting or doesn't last doesn't last, is this thing that doesn't last a dependable source of well-being and happiness, is it, or the actual wording, is it sukha or dukkha? It's dukkha. And then things that are, don't last, unstable, etc., undependable, not really satisfying, except maybe in a temporary, partial way. Is it suitable to take this as, this is me, this is mine, this is myself? Any guesses what the right answer is? <laughs> Another gold star. Um, and again, we can just repeat the phrases or we turn this into an ongoing inquiry. As we notice experiences, all right, there's some satisfaction in so moving so a certain discomfort goes away. But then the discomfort reappears, same spot nearby, somewhere else. Or if not, that discomfort, another one, and so I'm endlessly getting temporary satisfaction. Same a lot like nicotine. Gets satisfied, there's the pleasure, whatever, relief, and then comes back. The gerbil wheel of life kind of thing. So as we pay attention to this and inquire, then the third characteristic question is something like, well, is there anything here that's really me? Is there any aspect of this that's really mine? whether in the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, tasting, touching, knowing, or the khandas, or however else we might speak about and parse experience, body, mind, whatever. Do we actually find something that we can really hold to as this is me, this is mine, 
this is myself. There are some things we can do this provisionally. And in, in society, we kind of need to. <clears throat> this is my car. I'm going to lock it. Oh, these are my valuables that I don't want stolen, okay. That's how our society is operating. <clears throat> so on that conventional level, fine, there's a conventional me, mine. But beyond that is... Is it really something to ground ourselves on? Or ground our um, inner existence and experience in these identities, the little egos, possessions, and the like. And so I'm looking at the fan. I, this is my experience of looking at the fan. But your experience may not be my experience. So there is a, a me or my in there, is there not? I mean, or we may go to the ocean and my experience of that ocean is going to be different than your experience of that ocean. Well, first we're talking, so you're expressing something in words. And to what extent is are you putting your words onto experience? Like, I am looking at the fan, and I'm emphasizing I looking to make a point, and then digging myself further into this I. Yeah. How much is that going on? Or, or is it just, okay, this is our language, so I speak in a coherent sentence. I'm looking at that fan. So that's just communic. I see it as there can be simple communication. So that's one level where we confuse linguistic conventions like the pronoun I my mind, we take those pronouns and give it more meaning than simple communication. Second, um, a neurobiologist I was reading last year has a distinction I've appreciated that I reword them slightly. The way our nervous system works, we experience a subjectivity, which I think is part of what you referred to. There's 
the experiencing of the fan, the angles are different from where you're sitting and where I'm sitting. And the organism over there, and this organism too, has a certain sense of its existence. There's a non-conscious self there's a non-conscious aspect of that that neurobiologists feel they've identified. But it's just the way the neuro, the neurosystem works. And it includes hormones, like in the immune system, hormones and other stuff. So it's just the body's mechanism for knowing self and others. So there's this, you could call it a proto-self or a pre-conscious self. But then when we, there's some awareness, there's what I call the here-now self. There's this very simple subject. Most of the time, but I, I've had numerous meditation and other experiences where this is not present as far as I can tell. But generally, the here now self is present. But it's just a reference. There's somebody here different from those somebodies in these inanimate things. And we just leave it at that. It's just kind of a reference. And at that level, I would be willing to bet there's very little suffering. Maybe a little. I'm not sure, but... Then uh, the same neurobiologist has the term autobiographical self, the narrative self. That's the me that's got a history, a past, a future. All these stories we tell and retell and meanings we hash and rehash and bake and cook. Some Buddhist teachers use the word papanja, proliferation, for this. But to me, the autobiographical self, past, future, this is where most of the drama and suffering occurs. So I'm finding that helpful that maybe this subject, which is mostly present, and evolutionary biologists have some, I think, plausible theories about how this was valuable for evolution. Okay, sounds okay to me. And maybe the basis of minor dukkha. But what we're mostly talking about with the second arrow has to do with 
autobiographical self. So that's, and that's where we'll find the clinging together aggregates as well. Or at least the heavy duty clinging. It's possible, and again, I don't want to um, say this strongly. It's possible that what I call the here-now self arises and passes away without clinging. It's just a biological evolutionary mechanism. <laughs> but when there's clinging to that, then we get the proliferating autobiographical self. And that's where most of our, most or perhaps all of our suffering occurs. Identities and so on. How are we doing? Okay. Oh, here's something I meant to say this morning and I feel important <clears throat> with all this discussion of dukkha. <clears throat> because probably, um, well, commonly, if we talk a lot about suffering and guilt and shame and all that not-so-cool stuff, we can kind of, you know, it, it tends to bring up more dukkha-vetana, <laughs> than pleasantness. And sometimes that can affect us. So for some balance or rebalance, I want to stress that where the so-called noble truths focus on dukkha, the, as the suffering created by craving and clinging, the early teachings also talk a lot about joy in a number of ways. And so I'd, I'd like to sketch that out for a few minutes. For example, there's the joy, the pleasure of healthy breathing. The Buddha's teaching on mindfulness with breathing has a piece about the natural pleasure of natural healthy breathing. There are a number of places 
that speak to the joy of ethical conduct. For example, having a clear conscience. The more we have healthy sila, the more our conscious conscience is clear. That's a source of joy that Buddha, or at least early Buddhism, strongly recommends. Unfortunately, now sometimes it's framed as, you can't do this, you can't do that, which doesn't always make it sound joyful. It's all about sacrifice. But the early framing is it's it's an accessible way. It may at times be difficult or challenging, but an accessible way to find joy is good ethics, the practice of sila. Do folks around here do meta meditation and things like that? Good. That's a whole nother uh, category of practice. That's joyful. It's one reason we like it. Or we're curmudgeons if we don't. <laughs> Sometimes it's frustrating due to personalities interfering or whatever. But there are alternatives to metta. I do a lot of forgiveness practice, gratitude practice, so-called sympathetic joy, or simply appreciation. There's all these kinds of practices that especially for those of us whose minds wander a lot, we can channel that into some of these practices that once we get into the swing of them are joyful. Is that, does that fit our experiences? And sure, theoretically, you can cling to metta. You can get a little egoistic and proud about your metta or your altruism. But I can think of worse things to cling to, which should be remembered. And, okay, if we catch ourselves taking, getting a little proud of something, let go of the pride, it doesn't mean stop doing what's basically a healthy practice. And there's nothing inherently dangerous in the joy that comes from these. Then there are the meditative joys, often associated with samadhi, concentration, undistractedness. 
the way it's described in the early teachings. It's not a source of joy. Joy is a characteristic of a calm, grounded mind or grounded, non-distracted awareness is joyful. It feels safe. It's got a clarity and aliveness. It's just naturally joyful. And in these teachings, the we could probably say the ultimate joy is release. The release from all the second arrow stuff that we've talked about. Nobody's smiling. <laughs> which Thich Nhat Hanh likes to remind people that little smile perks us up a little bit, can shift our inner attitude. Don't smile because I uh, provoked you. Ah, maybe it's not so bad. Makes me feel better at least. Still debating whether we should do this last meditation because it's kind of heavy hitting. Yeah, I'm going to try something a little different. Shall we close with the guided practice? We have uh, about 20 minutes, so arrange yourself in a way that you'll be okay for the next 20 minutes. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org